0: I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22. We're going to start there. Uh, We are going to look through a larger portion of the gospel of Luke today to try to put together the pieces, the puzzle pieces of what Luke is trying to show us here in this text. And what we believe, there's four gospels written individually by four unique individuals, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, the gospel message is intended to speak to us, to show us a little bit about our life on this side of heaven. And so we're going to look at that today. What specifically is Luke trying to communicate to us? What's he showing us in his gospel? Then, as we understand that, there's two points of application. On one hand, you can read Luke chapter 22, the gospel reading that was just read, and you can actually look into it. You can apply it to your life in a way that's actually spiritually harmful. It's the wrong way to look at Luke chapter 22. Instead, then there must be a right way, a way that can spiritually uplift you, can help you in your walk with Jesus, so that today you can actually walk out of this place looking a little bit less like your sinful human self and a little bit more like Jesus. We're going to look at the two ways. But first, let's begin. Let's dive in. Luke chapter 22 uh, Luke's account of this pre-trial, this religious hearing by a group of people known as the Sanhedrin, is actually the shortest account of the three Gospels that cover it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all cover this. Very, very uh, condensed version that Luke gives us. That's number one. Second of all, he doesn't highlight any other individual in the Sanhedrin like Matthew and Mark does. There's no mention of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. It says that in Scripture, he was so upset at what he heard from Jesus and what was happening with Jesus that he tears his robe, a sign of great anguish, a sign of anger that he has towards Jesus. Luke doesn't cover it. Luke also doesn't mention the false witnesses. The Pharisees had gone into the crowd. They find a couple of guys, some sordid characters, who are willing to lie about things that Jesus said to try to get him arrested. Uh, They go. They find these guys. Their stories don't corroborate. And they try to coach him, like, hey, say it this way. But Luke doesn't mention that. Instead, what Luke does is lump all the religious leaders together. He wants to show us something about their nature, about their character. And starting with verse 63, it says that now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. This is also something unique to Luke's gospel. If you've ever been here on a Good Friday, uh, this is one of the readings that we read as part of the service of the word where they blindfold Jesus, they say prophesy. Uh, but then notice Luke's language here, uh, starting, let's go to verse 66. It says that they led him away to their counsel and then they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Uh, but Jesus said to them, and then jump to verse 70, so they all said, And he said to them, and they said, You get what Luke is doing here? He doesn't want you to see the individual people, he wants you to see this group of people as a collective group of evil folks who want to do harm to the Messiah. He's setting us up for something. Now, juxtaposed to that, he does highlight Jesus as the only individual in this account. And so when Jesus speaks, there's something to that that we have to pay attention to. Let's go to verse 67. They ask him, if you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. What Jesus is essentially saying here is, look, even if I told you, even if I said what you want me to say, it's not going to change your mind. This is a foregone conclusion. You think I'm guilty, and no matter what I say, nothing will change the course of history that's about to be made in this room. Now, he does respond after that with a word of warning. He's pretty stern here. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's alluding to what's gonna happen when he actually goes back to his heavenly Father. And for those who don't believe, it's a warning. It's not gonna be pretty. Power from on high is going to come down and judge the heavens and the earth which just as an aside i've said this before uh, i believe george lucas has stolen the entire plot of star wars from scripture for example obi-wan kenobi remember what he says he's about to be cut in half by a lightsaber he looks at darth vader and he says if you strike me down i will only grow more powerful (laughs) stolen right from luke 22 let's get those royalties to the church y'all Where was I? (laughs) So they ask him again. So you are the Christ. And again, Jesus doesn't answer their question. Now he's like teenage Jesus. Well, you say that I am. Stop hitting yourself. Don't do that. You know, this is Jesus. He's basically refusing to answer the question. And they get all fired up and they say, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Which, do you see the irony here? Jesus hasn't even answered them. Because they've made up their mind that he is bad, that he must be punished, and they're going to stop at nothing to get him to the court, get him to Pilate, the only one who had authority in the city to put him to death. And really then, as we look at all these different things, what Luke is especially trying to point out for us was the unbelief of the religious leaders. These are the pastors of the day. These are the ones that are supposed to know the scripture the best, the ones who would have been especially uh, interested in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is uh, the best book that we can look at in terms of messianic prophecy. Isaiah talks all the time about what the Messiah would look like how we could recognize the Messiah. And these religious leaders, they knew exactly what Isaiah said, but they refused to see the evidence that was right in front of their eyes. They were blind, blinded to the reality of who Jesus was and his ability to fulfill ancient prophecy and scripture from the book of Isaiah. They were blinded, and they had zero faith. That's what Luke is showing us. And there's one way that we can describe or... Define the word unbelief according to the gospel of Luke, and we'll look at that in just a second. Luke defines unbelief like this. Blind ignorance. Unbelief is blind ignorance. Blind because you can't see what's in front of your face. You're, you're just clueless to it but ignorance because of your actions. You don't understand the actions that you're taking, the ramifications that those actions will have. You're, you're clueless to it, blind ignorance. And I'll show you what you mean. What I mean. This is a, a, the, uh, a, a large uh, chunk of Luke's gospel to point this out. Let's go to Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four, starting with verse 14, we see that uh, Jesus has begun his ministry. He's going out into the towns, he's preaching, he's doing miracles, and right away Luke tells us that his popularity is catching on. He's being glorified by all, it says. And then he goes to his hometown, he comes back to Nazareth. Nazareth is where Joseph was from, where Jesus had been living and working up until the time of his ministry. He goes into the temple, it says, as was his custom. On the Sabbath day, he stood up to read, and it just so happens You know, you can use air quotes with this. It just so happens that the scroll, the reading of the day was from Isaiah 61. More prophecy of the Messiah. And so he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is verse 18. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and underline this next part and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll very dramatically. He sets it down and he says to them verse 21, "Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." In other words, he's laying claim to this messianic prophecy. I am the guy. I am fulfilling this. And his main goal for coming down to earth was to restore the sight of the blind. Now, we know that Jesus did physical miracles, right? He healed many blind men, including, I'm thinking of the account in Scripture. He spits in the mud. He messes with his finger. He puts the mud on uh, the guy's eyes, and he washes, and he can heal. So Jesus can heal physical blindness. But as you read the Gospel of Luke, you know that Jesus is far more concerned with spiritual blindness, Because he wants nothing more for those who walk this earth to know how deep the love of the Father is for his children. Men, women, who he sees as his dearly beloved children. That was Jesus' message. And as we go back to Luke chapter 22, this is fundamentally what we see these religious leaders absolutely getting wrong because of their spiritual blindness, their blind ignorance that's what luke wants us to see in luke chapter 22 now how do we apply it to our lives and i said before there's a right way to do it there is a spiritual helpful way we're going to get the bad way out of the way first we'll just start there we'll knock that one out because there's a harmful way that we can apply it and the the dangerous thing for us as christians here today if you are a christian in the room watching from home It is spiritually dangerous, and we have to avoid the temptation to look at this text, Luke 22, and say, Now, if I was there in that room with the Sanhedrin, I would never hurt Jesus. I would never say these things about Jesus. I would never mock him. I would never blaspheme him. I would do something entirely different than what we see happening In Luke chapter 22, because I am a good person, and these Sanhedrin, they together, they are the evil one in this story. Now, I know some of you are literally thinking, no, Micah, you don't understand. I would never punch Jesus or say those things about Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. We have to understand why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much in the first place. This is important. So let's go back to Luke chapter 4. And at first, when Jesus unrolls the scroll, he reads from it. He says, this has been fulfilled, and you're hearing the people. It says in verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is the hometown hero. He's saying what they want to say. He's doing what they want him to do, and they're looking at him like, yes, the Messiah is here. This is our Jesus. We like this guy. But then he flips the switch. See, so far all he's done is given a little bit of gospel, a little bit of of promise. Now he's gonna apply the law to their lives. And what he says in these next several verses is essentially this: You think that you are so morally superior because you're a Jewish person who goes to temple, who says their prayers, who gives the tithes, who does the fasting, you think you are so morally superior. But I'm here to tell you that you are no different than the Gentile unbeliever right outside your door because both Jews and Gentiles are in need of the overwhelming forgiveness that I have come to offer to save you. He takes away the pecking order. He, he crashes it to the ground. And the reaction of the Jewish people is very swift and very violent. Jump down to verse 28 says that when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They're furious. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, I've had some bad reactions to sermons before. Usually, it's in the form of an email. To my knowledge, no one's ever tried to throw me off a cliff. But they are so angry Because Jesus dared to point out their hypocrisy And he dared to Show them their deep spiritual need for forgiveness And that they weren't any better than anybody else Because all the world needs to be saved That's just one example Let's go to Luke chapter 7 Verse 36 A prominent Pharisee invites Jesus for dinner A man by the name of Simon And he's at the house, they're eating dinner. A woman comes in, she is carrying a jar of expensive perfume. And the text alludes to that she's either a prostitute or a woman who has just committed adultery. But she's broken, and she's repentant, and she's contrite. And she goes to Jesus, she dumps out the perfume on his feet, and with her hair is cleaning his feet, wiping his feet. She's so broken. But as the Pharisee is looking at this happen, verse 39, he's thinking this to himself. He said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, what's he saying? I don't need the grace of God, but she needs the grace of God, this horrible sinner. I am good with God because of the things that I've done and the type of person that I am. But this miserable sinner, she needs God's grace. You see what he's doing. Let's look at another one, chapter 15. Pastor Nate just covered this last Wednesday night of our our Lenten service. Jesus gives three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin. He ends with the parable of the lost son or prodigal son. It's about two boys, The older one, who was morally superior, who did all the things, who checked all the boxes, who was always obedient to his father, and the younger son, who constantly disobeyed, squandered dad's wealth. The younger son realizes what he's done, he repents, he comes back to his dad, he asks for forgiveness, and the father lavishly pours out his grace, his forgiveness on the younger son, and do you remember the reaction of the older son? He loses his mind, he's furious, that kid doesn't deserve your grace, dad. Have you seen what he's done? He doesn't deserve it. And we can go on and on and on. Let's go one more, Luke chapter 18. This time Jesus is wrapping up his ministry. He's getting ready to face the cross and he shares this parable about a Pharisee, a religious leader, and a tax collector who the Pharisee hated. A tax collector in those days was considered a great sinner because of uh, their uh, working in the Roman government collecting taxes Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus recognizes the very different approaches that these two men have made in terms of their relationship with God, and he summarizes it like this. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So as Christians, we have to be very, very careful as we try to apply this text to our lives, back to Luke 22, that we dare not look at this and say, well, I would never, because I'm not that kind of person. Because what Jesus wants us to see here today is that blind ignorance is just as spiritually damaging as spiritual arrogance. Arrogance that causes us to look at another group of people and point at them and say, they're a sinner, but I'm not a sinner. That's a bad way to apply this text to our lives today. What's the helpful way? What's the spiritual, significant way that we can look at this today? And again, look a little bit more like Jesus as we walk out the door. Well, I think we need to look at Jesus' words back in Luke chapter 18, and humbly approach this text and say by the grace of God I go by the sheer grace of God I go as we read this text you understand what Jesus is doing he doesn't argue against the Pharisees he he allows himself to be taken into custody He could have had a very nice argument. He could have done a miracle on the spot that would have proved his his divinity. John says in his gospel, he could have called down thousands and thousands of angels, the angel army from heaven to come down and utterly wipe out all of Jerusalem, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it because he had you and me and the entire world in his mind's eye to go to the cross and absorb the wrath of God that should be poured out on us. He absorbed it himself so that we could be free forever. So that when we cry out to God and ask him for forgiveness, when we're racked with guilt because of the sin that we keep committing over and over and over again, and we turn to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I'm sorry, this is the last time. And then we do it again. We can trust that Jesus hears us and forgives us. It's overwhelming grace when we approach this text and we can say by the grace of God I go and then practically speaking that can change our relationship that we have with this world it can change the relationship that we have with the they's of our culture And by they, I mean the group of people that you point to when you're reading the news or you're flipping through social media and you go, oh, those people. Oh, here they go again. Look at what this person is doing. Look what this group is doing. And we point our fingers, and I'm talking to myself. I do the exact same thing. We can actually approach those folks who are different than us, who are sinning in a certain way that goes against scripture we can actually look at them with compassion and here's how I know this is possible let's look at one more verse luke chapter 23 verse 34 jesus is on the cross he's been brutally beaten beaten whipped spit on mocked blasphemed as the text says somebody has lifted him up on the cross he now is suffocating to death this is how jesus would die suffocating And yet he has in his mind's eye to look up to heaven and he prays this prayer on our behalf. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive their blind ignorance. Father, forgive their spiritual arrogance for they know not what they do. This is what Jesus was thinking about as he breathed his last breath. Us that God would have mercy on us and forgive us and give us hope in our time of spiritual need. And when we can understand that, when, when by God's Holy Spirit, we, we have that hope in our heart and we believe the gospel to be true, then we can actually look at the groups of people who are different than us and we can have compassion on them. And let me just be very, very clear what I mean. I'm not talking about condoning sin. Because people who are far from God, they're not only broken, They're not only bringing sin into this world, they risk spending eternity outside of a relationship with their Heavenly Father. But that should break our hearts. And that should cause us to look at them and and have pity on them, not because we want to condone their actions, but because we want them to have the same hope and joy and peace and love and forgiveness that we have as Christians, if you are a Christian here today because we want them to have that same hope of a heavenly home in heaven forever. That should be our motivation. I've only been on this planet 43 years, but the only way I know that we can achieve that, if we can, is if we can humbly approach the throne of grace today and say, "By the grace of God, I go." Amen.